You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So, uh, our text today is going to be found in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. So you can turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it's going to be on the screens. We also have some pew Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, We'll be on page 825 in those Bibles if you want to grab one of those and read along. Uh, So we've been in a series called Eyes Full of Grace, and uh, we've been walking with Jesus to the cross. And so we've been examining uh, from the Mount of Olives where Jesus is transfigured uh, up until that moment where he is died and resurrected. Uh, We're looking at some of the events, life, and lessons of Jesus and learning from that. And so once again, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. And uh, if you are willing and able when you get there, if you could stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And there they are, the spring breakers. Listen, it does not go unnoticed from my eyes that this gathering is significantly larger than the nine o'clock by a, by a very far stretch. I know you guys just got done partying and probably got in an hour ago, but I'm just kidding. Well, I hope you guys are doing well. My name is Ty Gaston. I am one of the staff members here at Providence Community Church. Um, It is always a joy of mine to be able to bring the Word of God uh, to the church, especially the one that I love. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking to it because because it is the anchor to our souls in a very fluid age. So what I'm going to do and ask you to do with me is pray, and uh, we'll we'll get moving forward with the service. Bow your heads. Father God, we... We lift you up this morning. God, more than our circumstances, more than our stations, we lift you up. And God, we we don't pretend to hide anything because you see all. And so this morning we submit all of our worries, all of our fears, all of our anxieties, we submit them before you. God, you are the God that gives peace and understanding. And we pray that you would do that for us today. So God, as we listen to your word, God, we pray that it would be like I said before, an anchor to our soul, a light to our path, a lamp in our life. God, we need your direction. We need your guidance. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. 
So a, a time of crisis is something that I have a love-hate relationship with. The, the hate part is, is pretty obvious. Uh, when crisis happens, we generally don't like it, right? We hate it because it causes disruption in our normal rhythms of life. But there's a part about it that, um, and call me a masochist, whatever it may be, but there's a part of it that I, I do enjoy, and that's that there's a, there's a level of ingenuity, a creativity of unifying people that happens when a crisis happens. So... For example, uh, one that happened in, in a recent past, well, I wouldn't say recent, but uh, when, when 9-11 took place, when a terrorist flew a plane into our building, there is no longer, at least on the surface level, no longer a division between people in America. We wanted to unify together against those that would disrupt our nation. And that's in generalities. And then you had, you had Hurricane Harvey, where no longer... Did people care about how much money you made, what you look like, what your political background is? None of that mattered because at the end of the day, our most basic human need, which is that my life is in danger, is now, is, is now my greatest concern. I care about the fact that my life is on the line and I also care about the fact that your life is on the line and I will do whatever it takes to fix that. I mean, we saw all kinds of stuff. People, we saw the Cajun Navy rush in like bullhorns uh, from Louisiana. I mean, People, uh, people from our church is jumping on John boats in these strong currents to try and save lives. It's, it's cra- it was crazy. It was crazy the amount of people that wanted to help. And cra- what's even crazier was their, their lack of concern for themselves. They were concerned about other people. Uh, COVID-19 brought similar things where even though we were uh, subjugated to our own house, there were these innovations that took place in order to make sure that we could still feel together. And so even though we were away and quarantined, things like Zoom and Microsoft Teams and even FaceTime got better. All of these things that even though they existed at some level, they got significantly better for the experience of other people. So that way we could address one of our also most basic needs, which is God did not create us to be alone, that we must be together. And we made ways for that to happen. There's also this really cool thing that uh, came out during COVID. I don't know why I was so amazed by this. Uh, Court was actually the one that showed it to me, but it was like that little key that you can like pull doors open with, you can do touch screens with. Y'all have seen that? They're at every single cash register, even selling to this day. But it was amazing. I was so blown away by that. Such ingenuity for the life of, the, for the life of man. And then lastly, uh, most, the most recent one was Snowmageddon 2021, where we experienced temperatures and weather like we have not in the past 100 years. But what, what came out of that was pipes bursting all over the place, including one of our own. Uh, really across the city, there was crisis after crisis, turmoil after turmoil. When it's all said and done, there will be more money spent on renovations during Snowmageddon 2021 than Hurricane Harvey itself. It was incredible the amount of damage that was done. But what you also saw was that people were willing to lay down their own needs and own concerns for the concerns of others. We're not contractors, we're not uh, construction workers, but there were people that were willing to go in houses to their next door neighbors to tear out drywall, rip out insulation, close up pipes, do whatever they had to do. There were several circumstances where I saw relationships were mended because of this crisis. Because at the end of the day, it's no longer about us. It's about helping our fellow brother and sister. Now, I, like I said before, I believe this is true because it has a way of drawing our eyes off of ourselves 
and we're no longer fixated on you know, us. But sadly, these moments come in bursts and only with crisis and do not reflect the general direction of our culture at large. And more than anything, we live in a culture that is marked by self-exaltation. In our culture, it is a virtue to diagnose our society's problems and believe that we should be the ones to solve all of those issues and make the decisions. And when left unchecked and free to roam, we begin to build this place that is the opposite of the kingdom of God. It's a place that values self-promotion. And this is easily seen in areas of, areas of politics where mine is better than yours. It's easily seen in the workplace where I'm willing to push someone aside, gossip about them, slander them, so that way I can get the promotion. And it's even seen in the church as well. People are willing to get ahead, to be known, and be valued off the backs of other people. But we must have a self-awareness of who we are and who we are not. When we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, we end up looking down on others and comparing our strengths to their weaknesses. It's a life of perfectionism. And I don't believe that we actively think we're perfect, but the way that we live our lives reveals that we sometimes feel that way. And this is, uh, this is common, uh, we commonly see this in areas like gossip, where, you know, for example, we will exalt, exalt ourselves by talking about others' weaknesses and making um, everyone else look down upon them as well so that we can feel better. But it's not just thinking about ourselves more highly than we ought. Like I said, we need to have a self-awareness that is right. So if we think of ourselves too little, we become slaves to others' opinions, tossing to and fro by the word of man. And we end up, when we do this, we tend to give ourselves over to things that, we, that only compound our shame, and we end up doing things that we really don't want to do. But this morning, we're going to look at a text that will show us what happens when we do not think of ourselves rightly, and what will happen when we look at the world through a set of gospel lenses. And more than anything else, it's going to affirm that one of the greatest virtues that a Christian can have is both service to God and to others. So let's go. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 21 says this. When the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So if there's anything that's clear in this text is that the disciples clearly have shown they just don't get it at this point. And then there may not be any help for them, honestly, aside from the saving work of Christ. Because up until now, Jesus has already rebuked them for arguing who the greatest was. He dismissed the rich young ruler right in front of them. And he told, and he told multiple parables about the dangers of not seeing your, seeing your own weakness and walking in hypocrisy. For example, a parable of the prodigal son has been told at this point, uh, which was told about a, a younger brother not... Uh, paying attention to his own sta uh, station in life, and then an older brother thinking that he's better than he should. And then you have the laborers in the vineyard, where you had the laborers uh, that were tenured workers, if you will, where they've been working for a really long time. They see these workers that just get hired right on the spot. They work for an hour, and they get the same pay, and now they don't understand why, uh, why that is, and they think it's unjust. And Jesus told this in light of, uh, in light of people need, needing to see who they are in light of Christ. Now, What's really clear after all of this is that they just don't get it. They, uh, it's, like, it's like whenever they argue about who the greatest is, 
It's like they're not even paying attention, paying attention to Jesus's retorts. Like they ask him the question, but he gives them the answer that they don't want. So they, so they're talking back and forth. Like, who's the greatest? Is it me? Is it Peter? Is it Bartholomew? Is it Theodore? Who is it? I, I really want to know. First of all, if your name's Teddy, you're not going to be the greatest. I'm just kidding. If your name's Teddy, I'm sorry. Um, but Jesus says, hey, listen, guys, it's not about who's the greatest. And they just look at him and say, all right, so back to who's better. And, and they just keep this conversation going because they can't get the answer that will satisfy them. And the patience that Jesus shows to the disciples is absolutely astounding. It's no wonder that people just don't start bursting into flames left and right, to be honest. But first... And, and we can't move past this. I'm not just going to read past it. We all got to acknowledge it. Isn't, isn't it terrible how they sent their mother to handle their business? Can we acknowledge that for just a quick second? Could you imagine showing up to your first job interview and having your mother do it for you? <laughs> or when you, like, like when I think about giving a real good show of power, I'm like, go get them, mom. And Listen, nothing against moms. I, my, my father passed away at a young age, and my mom served both roles in some ways. And, and uh, so I, I have a mom that is, is able and willing to show the wrath if you cross her. But I'm just saying sending my mom to handle my business is not the route that I would go to impress someone. Just saying. However, even though we may be able to remove their man cards for this, what this is a better version than the one that Mark portrays. So Mark in this story actually leaves out the mom altogether. And it says that James and John come up to uh, Jesus. And they Seriously, this is in your Bible, go read it. And they, they say, Jesus, we want you to do anything, that whatever we ask of you. And it's like, it's, it's like they're saying, listen, I'm going to ask you a question, but before you answer it, I just want you to know I need you to agree with me. It's okay, all right. You know you're talking to the God of the universe right now. Um, either way, these guys, regardless of the story, are total squirrels. That's for sure. All right, let's keep going. Verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And I can only imagine that Jesus had a smirk on his face whenever he said this. Like, what a gracious and kind response. They, uh, they want to sit at his right hand and left hand, ascend to the same position as Jesus. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Like, have you thought about this? Because this is a big deal. Mainly because Jesus just got done for the third time explaining that he was going to die by crucifixion. And they knew exactly what that was. Literally, the passage before it explains the Son of Man will have to die he will be crucified, and on the third day, he'll be raised. And Jesus says, hey, can you take this cup? And they're like, oh, yeah, we got it. Yeah, for sure. Like such confidence. I mean, I, I know we all have those friends that speak with such authority and confidence in areas that they shouldn't, and just how badly that goes sometimes. Um, I'm one of them, so I'm your friend. But if you don't have one, you got one now. Um, but... They, they speak with this, and as funny as, that is, as funny as that is, Jesus' retort is even better. Look, verse 23, after they just got done, got done saying, we are able, and he said to them, oh, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it is prepared for by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, we know this is true. They do receive the same treatment as Jesus. So Jesus is asked, can you drink my cup? 
They say, yeah, oh yeah, we got this, we're able. And Jesus is, Jesus is like, okay, yeah, you will. Um, and they do. Later on in life, James is martyred. And John is relegated and sent off to the island of Patmos where he will write the book of Revelation, but that's not before he gets boiled by hot oil. So they do drink of the cup of Jesus. So Jesus was telling the truth. They definitely do. But what's funny about this is that James and John were not alone. The other, other disciples were indignant as well. But you would think that maybe they were indignant because, you know, how dare they do it? This isn't right. They need to be more humble, things like that. No, they were indignant because James and John beat them to it. Like I said before, they had had conversations about who was the greatest multiple times over. So all of the disciples have been arguing and jockeying for position, saying, I'm greater. No, I'm greater. And Jesus is like, well, it doesn't matter. And James and John do this, and it's like the other disciples are saying to themselves, Dang it, that was my idea. They beat me to it. They wanted to do that. James and John were just the entrepreneurs. They were just the ones that built it first. They're the ones that went to Jesus. They started to work their way in. If, if, if I know Peter anyway, he's probably plotting, uh, plotting to beat him up later. If um, That's the only thing I could think of. But the truth is, Jesus was and has been trying this entire time to help them see themselves for who they truly are, sinners in need of saving. Jesus has been trying to show us that there's a life better than the one that lives for approval, that a life lived vertically for God and horizontal towards others is the life that is the better one. And at the end of the day, we are called to be servants. And this is true both in our servanthood towards God and the life uh, life of service to make uh, our neighbor's life better. And this brings me to my first point, that servanthood begins with humility. And so there is an overarching truth that runs through Matthew 19, 13, through 20 and, uh, and 34, and that's this, that Jesus rejects the proud and gives grace to the humble, and that salvation has nothing to do with human merit and absolutely everything to do with divine mercy. So we often move past this way too quickly, that Jesus rejects the proud, it, because that's, that's an intense statement. Rejection is a really big fear of most people. And for Jesus to literally turn it away, stiff arm, say, you're not coming any further. I reject the proud. I mean, for goodness sakes, do, do you remember what he did to the fig tree? This was just a plant that wasn't producing fruit and Jesus cursed it for life. It, because, you know, how dare a plant stand there and not produce fruit, right? That's a proud tree. And Jesus curses it, pushes it away. Now, over the last couple of chapters, Jesus, he shows, he shows this truth, this overarching truth in multiple different ways. First, when Jesus receives the little children, he is receiving the humble. When he turns away the rich young ruler, he is rejecting the proud. When Jesus tells the parable of the laborers at the vineyard and the owner hires the others that were standing outside, he is receiving the humble and when Jesus confronts and questions the tenured laborers, he is rejecting the proud. When Jesus tells his disciples that he must die for the sins of man, he is rejecting any pride and merit from our end and affirming our dependent need for grace. When Jesus turns away James and John's request to move up the leadership ladder, he is rejecting the proud. And let's be clear, he's also saving them. 
Because if Jesus were to allow him, if he were to just give in to James and John saying, yeah, you can sit in my right hand and left hand, they could not possibly bear that load. They could not possibly drink the cup that Jesus did. They may have had a taste of it, but there's no possible way we could bear the sins of all men, past, present, and future. There's no way that we could do it. Only God could. And so by Jesus rejecting their ascent to leadership, it was, a, it was a show of grace, a mark of grace. Now, there's a second question that we have to be asked, that has to be asked. It's why does Jesus reject the proud? And the sin of pride ultimately assumes a position in life that is greater than it should be. And this passage that, we, that we're reading right now has less to do about attaining power, even though that is true, it has more to do with one of the more damning life positions, and that's that we would count ourselves equal with God. And this is the sin that got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place. They wanted to be like God. They weren't simply okay with being in the garden. They weren't okay with their current station in life. They thought, if I have a better title, if my situation's better, if then everything will be right. If I could just be like God, if I can make the decisions, if I could call the shots, then everything will be okay. They were so worried about being God that they forgot, they forgot that they were actually walking with him. And you see the disciples make the same error, that they forget they're so concerned with making decisions about being the greatest that they're less concerned that they're actually walking with God on earth. They forget about that. They lose sight of it. We can't, and it's, it's dangerous to desire better circumstances more than we desire communion with Jesus. So before we ever look to change what we're doing in our life, we should first say, does this get me more or less of Jesus? That should be our first question. It shouldn't be, is it right or is it wrong? It should be, does it get me more of Jesus or does it take away from it? That should be the area that we go to first. And ultimately what it says whenever we are concerned about being God and not concerned with being in communion with him, it ultimately says that God got it wrong and I can do it better. That God must follow my commandments. And this set of pride or autonomy from God and counting ourselves equal with him never stops coming. We must be ferocious against fighting it. And listen, like I made a joke about spring break. We all got some rest. Or at least I hope you did. But here's the one thing that doesn't get rest and doesn't take time off, sin. It never stops. It keeps coming ferociously. And it, it will always be there. Like, uh, like it was said in Genesis 4, it's crouching at our doors ready to pounce on us. It's always there. So we can't turn our backs on it. We have to ferociously fight against sin, especially one that would place us on the throne. We, we must actively fight the desire to think of yourself. Because here's the thing. If you, if you are left to your own devices and you just don't do anything and you just remain complacent, you will only think about yourself. That's our default. Our default is to think about me and myself. And so we have to actively fight against that. We, have to, we can't just go on the defense and self-preservate. We have to go on the offense and say, no, I will fight and kill the sin that makes me think of myself and glorify myself more than God. And here's the thing. We, we trust our feelings way too much, truthfully. Uh, we trust our opinions. We trust our thoughts, 
our theories way too much, way more than we ought to. The Bible says that the heart is the most deceitful among all things, and if that is true, we should learn to start questioning our feelings and laying them before Jesus. That before we get to a good, solid conclusion, I'm going to plant my flag in the ground, we should first say, does this line up with God's word? That is a heart of humility. That is a life that is submitted underneath the authority of God and not one that seeks to take it for itself. A heart of humility is one that lays down its own, its own feelings, theories, and thoughts for the sake of God and others. Which leads me to point number two. Servanthood is marked by sacrifice. Verses 25 through 27 says this. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so amongst, among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus redefines what it means to be great. Our world says that when you are great at something, it is because you are better than most. For example, if if LeBron James were to walk into this room right now, it doesn't matter who you are, how good your high school career was, he will destroy you in basketball. It's just clear. He's six foot eight, 250 pounds, can run 23 miles an hour, and has a 45-inch vertical. It's just, it's not even a a question. I literally watched the guy jump over a full-grown man, all right? He would destroy every single one of us. Why? Because the world says that is great. But Jesus, he flips it on its head. And you see James and John, that they understand this worldly level of greatness because they're trying to get in tight with the boss, right? They're trying to get in close to Jesus because they think if I get close to Jesus, the closer I am, the better uh, that I will be. Uh, what's, what's really funny, I was talking about this with Eric in the back, but um, the book of John doesn't mention this story where James and John are completely thrown against the rocks. And, uh, but all the other gospels do. All the other gospels do. In fact, John even, even dares to call himself the one whom Jesus loved. But he just kindly misses this one. He just keeps it out. I love it. It's uh, just a funny thought. Jesus, though, he flips what it means to be great on its head. It's not about how good your resume looks or how well you can woo those in power, but rather being great in the kingdom means that you think of others more than yourself. Being great in the kingdom means living a life that is marked by sacrifice of self for the good of others. Being great means you don't lord your position in life, your station in life over others. You don't flex your authority. But Jesus knew that this is what James and John would do. How? Because there was a conversation in the, later on earlier where Jesus uh, asked, he basically went to the town of Samaria and they rejected him. And James and John are like, should we just rain fire on them right now? Is that, is that the route we should go? But Jesus, it, it says Jesus rebukes them because that is lording your position over someone. That is both oppression by raining down fire and suppression. Nobody will ever do it again because I'll rain down fire on you. It's both suppression and oppression. It is lording over. It is not ruling as a servant. Because Jesus knew that across the board, bad authority discourages, cripples, wilts, and destroys. It's never satisfied and always hungry for more, more territory, more control. It hates constraints, and it always takes. It never gives. Where God's rule is kind and generous and loving, human rule is selfish and wrecks those around them. Have you ever noticed that 
when a leader is unhealthy and they're moving in this direction of selfish ambition that everything around them just tends to crumble. People don't want to be around them anymore. They lose friends. Family don't, families don't trust them. If, if you're a parent and you rule with an iron fist, eventually those kids get away from you. When you lead in an unhealthy way, everything around you begins to crumble. But Jesus is saying that there's a better way, that there's a fundamental difference between how the world tells us to lead and exercise authority and the kingdom of God. Charles Colson, who was both a believer and the special counsel to the president from 1969 to 73, said it this way. Nothing distinguishes the kingdoms of man from the kingdom of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. One seeks to control people, the other to serve people. One promotes self, the other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position, the other lifts up the lowly and despised. The lure of power can separate the most resolute of Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is service to others. It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and also wash the feet of those below. It's impossible to live a life of servanthood if you are standing above others. This is the position, ultimately, that God rejects. Rather, living a life of servanthood is directly reflective of how much you are willing to lay down your life for the sake of others, just like Jesus. It reflects how much you're willing to sacrifice for other people. I heard one pastor say it this way, sin makes us think like this, your life for me. I'm going to make you sacrifice for me, for my interests, for my self-image. You must sacrifice your needs to serve mine. But Jesus came into the world saying, my life for you. My life to serve you. My life poured out for you. I sacrifice for you. He says those are the two ways that you can live your life. Every single day, every hour, you have a decision to make, and it's to live your life based on one of those two principles. Either your life for mine or my life for yours. And this leads me to point number three. Servanthood is modeled by Christ. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus modeled for us what it looks like uh, to, to live a life of servanthood. We receive his life because Jesus took our death. We receive his robe of righteousness because he was stripped of his. We get a crown because Jesus received a crown of thorns. We get a royal signet ring placed on our hands because Jesus took nails in his. We get our feet washed because Jesus took nails in his. This is what it looks like to serve others instead of rule over them. Because Jesus had every right. He had every right to just come into the world and wreck shop, to clean house every right to, but he didn't. He chose not to count himself equal to God. He chose not to exercise the authority that was given to him, but instead he chose to lay it down for the good of others. In fact, he chose to die for the good of others. In fact, the same God that orchestrated the resurrection is also the same God that orchestrated the cross. It's the same God that promoted life also said, in order to get there, you gotta die. In order to see life in your own life, you have to die to yourself. We're told to take up, our, take up our cross. In order to see life in others, you must die to yourself. It is a constant call to death in the life of a believer. Death to self. And Jesus modeled this perfectly. 
Now, this is where James and John got it wrong, though, because Christ coming to serve does not mean that Christ came to do what we say. It means that Christ came to give us what we need, and ultimately, it means that he had to stand in our place. That was our greatest need. Our greatest need was that sin separated us from God and Christ made a way. Christ coming to serve means that he loved us enough to stand in our place, He's to stand in our place as a substitute. We cannot possibly... It would be impossible for us to live this life without first acknowledging that. It would be impossible to serve others and model this kind of, this kind of lifestyle without acknowledging that Jesus first did it, did it in our place. It would only be an exercise in frustration. So what this means is that following in Jesus' example means that we lay down our needs for the needs of others. That just like Jesus, all true love, which is the basis of servanthood and sacrifice, is substitutionary, my life for yours. There's no way around it. The only way to love someone truly is to put yourself in their place. And listen, I, I know the fear that comes with that is that I can't, I can't relate to that person. Like, for example, I, I said earlier in, uh, in the sermon that I lost my father at a young age. Maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe that's just not something you can connect to or empathize with. But that doesn't mean that you can't serve. It, what it does mean is that you've been affected by sin just like I have, and you have, your own, you, have your, you have your own areas, your own experiences that I can't relate to either, but that doesn't mean that I can't serve you. What that means is, is that sin affects us all, and that means that every single one of us, because of that, is on equal footing. It means that every single one of us needs Jesus. Every single one of us needs the cross. Every single one of us can rejoice that the tomb is empty. Every single one of us can serve the other, even if we can't fully relate. And I'll close with this, but my hope for you this morning is threefold. That you would recognize your own sin and your need for Jesus, and that that you must live a life of humility. Number two, that you would think of yourself less and lay down your life for the good of others. That your life wouldn't be about you you would be able to live a life where you legitimately thought, not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. And lastly, that you would direct your gaze to the king that did it first. Direct your eyes to Jesus, who is the source of your ability to serve in the first place. That you would look to his example of how to uh, live selflessly and walk in humility. That even if you do have a position of power, that you don't lord it over people, but that you you wash their feet. Your life for theirs. Substitutionary atonement, the same way Jesus did for us. That's my hope for you. Uh, My hope is that you walk throughout this week knowing that you are both freed from shame, that you you don't have to jockey for position, but that you can walk in freedom, and that freedom will give you the ability to love others well, just like Jesus did. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we can't do anything that we talked about this morning without you. God, if left to our own devices, we will only think of ourselves. If left to our own devices, we will wreck our own lives. But God, we are so grateful that you step in, you step in the gap. We're so grateful that you didn't leave us to walk off the cliff, 
but that you rescued us. And so this morning, we, we, we put our hearts and souls uh, at your feet, knowing that you are gracious and kind enough to welcome us. And so, God, as we walk in this level of humility that acknowledges our sin before you, we pray that you would encourage us. And, God, as we look to see what it means to live a life of sacrifice, just as you did for us, we pray that you would help us uh, see the areas where we might be thinking about ourselves too much and not others, where we might be indulging the flesh and not giving way to advancing the kingdom by a life of service. And ultimately, Jesus, we know that this can only happen by your example and your power. And so, God, we lean into you. We trust you. We ask that your, uh, that your spirit would fill our hearts where the world may drain it. So, God, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.